There is no substitute for the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Each weekday on Enjoying the Journey, Scott Pauley leads us in a brief study of Scripture. Today, on the Weekend Pulpit, we are happy to share a full-length Bible message given through Scott's pulpit ministry. These messages were recorded live in a local church or gospel event in recent days. It is our prayer that the message will be a help to you today. Let me show you something from the Bible God's teaching me today. Would you open your Bible, please? And what book of the Bible are we in, class? Very good. You were listening. Go to the Gospel according to Mark, second book in the New Testament. Ought to be easy to find. And Mark is the writer that shows us Jesus as the perfect servant. That's fascinating to me. He's master. He's Lord of all. He's king of the universe. But he's the perfect servant. And in fact, Mark emphasizes the hands of Jesus and the works of Jesus even more than the other gospel writers because he's showing us something about Jesus' perfect service to the Heavenly Father. We're journeying with Jesus. We started in the early chapters and we introduced you last night to his first followers. Come with me to Mark chapter number 6 and let's keep traveling tonight. Mark 6 and verse 1 we read, And he, that's Jesus, went out from thence. And came, look at Mark 6, verse 1, into his own country. And his disciples follow him. So here they come, Jesus. They call him rabbi now. Rabbi means teacher. That was a big deal in those days. He's the rabbi. He's, he's the teacher. But this is not just any teacher. Oh, no. This is teacher with a capital T. This is, this is the teacher who not only gives the truth, he is the truth. He's not just the channel for the message. He's the source of the message, and here he comes, and along behind him comes that inner circle, Peter, James, and John. And then all the rest that we studied last night, and there at the back of the pack somewhere is Judas Iscariot, at least figuratively, always last in the list, kind of on the outside looking in, a spectator, not a participant. And the Bible says he comes into his own country. Look at verse 2. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judah and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. The Bible says, Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. But these people, they, they got offended. They got blown away because they couldn't believe that the guy that grew up in their town, that they had known since he was a little boy, 
whose mother was standing right there and his brothers and his sisters were standing right there in the same crowd. They couldn't believe that this man was not just another man. He was the God-man. They couldn't wrap their mind around the fact that this rabbi, this teacher, was the Son of God. And the Bible says they were so blown away by it, they ignored him. Can you imagine Jesus walking through this building tonight and we ignored him? Can you imagine? He came in the side door and took a seat in the corner somewhere and no one spoke to him. Can you imagine worse yet? He walked to the platform and began to speak and everybody said, we got better things to do. They missed him. The Bible says in verse 4, but Jesus said unto them, a prophet is not without honor, but in his own country and among his own kin and in his own house. And I think this may be one of the saddest verses in the whole Bible. In fact, I think maybe verse 5 and verse 6 are two of the worst things I've ever read. Now, they're true because it's in the Word of God. But the Bible says in verse 5 that he could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them, and he marveled. What made Jesus marvel? He never marveled at buildings. His disciples talked about the big buildings, and Jesus said they'll all be gone someday. He, he never marveled at money. He never marveled at what everybody else marveled at. No, no. See, Jesus looks beneath the surface into the heart. He, he looks at things deeper and higher and further than we do. You know what he marveled at? He marveled at spiritual things. And here, the Bible says he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went round about the villages teaching. Why is it that you can have a week at camp like this and some people, the rest of their life will point to this week and say, God changed my life that week. And others will come. And they'll have a great time. And they'll learn a few things. But they will go home the same they came. And there'll be no real difference. Why is that? It's puzzled me for years. I mean, I preach in a lot of these kind of camps. And I look out over a crowd like this, and everybody hears the same message. And everybody gets the same opportunity. And everybody sits through the same invitations. But there'll be some here who get it and others who don't. There's a meeting like this one night. <clears throat> At the end of the meeting, they gathered around the altar for prayer. And by the way, I love the way you responded last night and the way you prayed. It was wonderful. There was a young lady that came to the altar that night. Her name was Adelaide Pollard. She was musically gifted like a lot of the people who are here this week. And she knelt in the good providence of God over to the side next to a dear old saint of God. And I say that respectfully. A woman way up in years. An elderly Christian lady. But a woman who knew God. She not only knew God, she knew how to pray. And she wasn't ashamed to pray. And Adelaide Pollard is praying very silently and quietly to herself. And she hears this woman next to her praying out loud. Kind of startled her for a moment. And then suddenly, it captivated her. She would later say, I've never heard anybody pray like that elderly woman prayed. And she said it was like she was in a battle. It was like she was struggling between her will and, and, and what she knew God wanted. It was like she was at that great crisis moment of surrender. 
And she said, finally, it got so real, she said, it was like Jesus was sitting on the altar in front of her, and they were having a conversation. She said, I know I shouldn't have done it, she said, but I opened my eyes and looked. And she said, I saw the woman tears streaming down her face. And she said, finally, she threw both hands up in the air and said, Lord, why don't you just have your own way with us? And Adelaide Pollard couldn't get it out of her mind. She went home that night and wrote for the first time the hymn that from time to time we sing in our churches, Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will while I am waiting, yielded and still. And when I read the story of the song and of how God worked in that old woman's heart, I think I came to understand the difference. Because, look, two people can kneel in an altar, but that doesn't mean both are yielding to God. Two people can pray prayers, but that doesn't mean both of them are going to obey the Lord. Two people can make decisions, but that doesn't mean both of them are going to follow through. Some of you last night got your salvation settled. I thank God for that. But some of you have yet to do that. Some of you as believers, you, you've already taken the next step since you've been here. I mean, you haven't been here 24 hours and already. God is at work and the Lord is on the move and you're a part of it. It's exciting. But some of you, you're still watching it happen. Look, Jesus is passing through this place. Jesus has come to town. The Lord is at work in this place. And the question is, are you going to get in on it or are you going to miss His mighty work? You still have your pen out tonight to mark some things in your Bible? I want you to do something. Everybody look in Mark chapter number 6 and verse number 2. Notice, they said at the end of verse 2, they observed such mighty works. They're talking about Jesus' works. By the way, all of God's works are mighty works because He's the mighty God. And if you think His mighty works are the works you see, I want to tell you tonight, God's always working on many fronts, and sometimes the deepest, greatest, longest-lasting work He's doing in somebody's life is the work that nobody else even knows about. And some of you tonight, God's working on you. It's not this preacher talking to you. The Holy Ghost all day long has been stirring something in your soul. That's the Lord working on you, and it's mighty. Oh, but don't miss this. When you come down to verse number 5, notice the footnote of failure. The Bible says, and by the way, it wasn't Jesus' failure. It was their failure. Look at verse 5. And he could there do no, what's it say? Mighty work. Now, wait a minute. They said they had seen some mighty works in verse number 2, but when you get down to verse number 5, it says he really couldn't do the mighty works he wanted to do there. Matthew's account says, not many. Oh, he did some things, but not everything that he wanted to do. And I've had this thought all day in my mind. I see God at work. Today, I've prayed with some people, and I've listened to some people, and I've observed some things, and I've heard about how God's working in some of you. And I know God is at work. I believe that. But I said to somebody today, there's spiritual warfare going on. There's, there's conflict going on. There always is. Every time God is working, Satan is fighting. And the great issue is not, is God mighty or is God able or is God working? The question is, are we going to let God do everything God wants to do or are we going to limit the Lord? The Bible says in the Psalms about Israel that they limited the Holy One of Israel. Hold on to your seat. There is no limit on God except the limit you put on Him. God wants to do more than you could ever imagine. 
He said, Call unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. He still says in Ephesians 3.20 that he's able to do, get all these superlatives, exceeding, abundantly, above all we could ask or even think according to his power that works inside of us. I'm telling you, you let God be God, and you let God do his deep work, and it'll be the grandest thing you've ever seen in your life. And the greatest adventure you ever have will be the adventure of following Jesus and watching him work. But I tell you, if you limit God, you're going to miss it. This very day, I've heard of some people, not here, not here, in other places. And I grieve to say it, grieve. We've gotten away from the Lord. We allowed sin to enter in, and they're missing what God had for them. And you read the stories in the Bible. They're not all positive. God gives negative stories for a reason. Abraham, Abraham had the blessing, but Lot, Lot missed the mighty works God wanted to show in his life. Paul, Paul saw God's mighty works, but Demas, Demas went home. Demas loved this present world more than he loved Jesus, and Demas missed the mighty works that God had for him. And Samson, oh, he had little glimmers of strength, didn't he? But he lived a life of weakness. He missed the fullness of what God had created him for. I'm telling you that God is not some Christian commando that's going to kick the door of your heart down, barge his way in, and make you do the right thing. He's going to offer you a choice, and you've got to determine whether you're going to let God do what God wants to do in your life or not. And I say to you tonight, most people in your generation are going to float downstream. They're going to be nominal, mediocre, run-of-the-mill, average, ordinary kind of Christians who just do enough to get by. They're content with God's minimum work, and they miss God's mighty work. And you're going to have to determine if that's going to be you or if you want everything that God has for you. When I come to Mark 6, every time I come to it, I get under such conviction. I wrote in my journal this afternoon, about a number of things. I wrote about some of you in it and what God was doing this week. But I wrote in my journal in big, bold boxcar letters, I don't want to miss what God has for me. I'm testifying. I'm not preaching. You know what I fear more than anything? Living my life, going through all the motions, and kneeling at the nail-pierced feet of Jesus, and Jesus saying, Scott, I had so much more for you, but you wouldn't trust me. I had so many blessings. They were ready. I mean, look at them right here. They are, but you wouldn't obey me. I had so many answers to prayer, but you never asked. I was there. I was present. I had more than enough, but you missed it. You know the worst thing about sin Sometimes we preachers, we come in, we preach on a long litany of sins and all the things you ought not do. And usually we say, if you do, you get this, and this happens, and, and this comes in your life, and this terrible thing happens. I'm going to tell you the worst thing about sin. The worst thing about sin is not what you get, it's what you miss. And the reality is, you don't even realize all that till you get to heaven someday. And at the judgment seat of Christ, you begin to realize how much more God had for you. And I'm not preaching at you tonight. I'm pleading with you. Don't miss what Jesus is trying to do in your life this week. Let's go to his hometown. 
Look at verse number 1. When I look at verse number 1, why does God tell us he came to his own country, to his own town? Would you write this down somewhere? Because the Lord wants to work in common places. Sometimes people think, you know, preacher, someday I'm going off to Christian college, and when I get to Christian college, I think God's really going to work there. Let me just tell you something. If God can't be God in your hometown, he's not going to be God at the Christian college to you. Somebody else says, well, I, I'm going to be a missionary someday, preacher. You think getting a passport, getting on an airplane is going to bring you into the power of God? I tell you, if Jesus can't be Lord in your life, in your hometown, you'll never obey him halfway around the world. And some of you from very ordinary, mundane kind of places, a little speck on the map, some out-of-the-way insignificant place, and you say, well, I can see how God could work in some urban metropolis or some big spotlight kind of place. I don't know how God could work where I am. Oh, God loves working in those places. You know why he loves it? Because he gets all the glory for it. Do you know what his own country was? I'm going to say his name. Say what is next. I hope you, you know what I'm going after here. Ready? Jesus of, that's it. Did you know at least 19 times in the gospel records Jesus is called Jesus of what? Nazareth. Do you know where the angel first appeared to Joseph and Mary? It was in Nazareth. When they come in to arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know who they asked for? Jesus of what? Nazareth. And Jesus stands up and says, I am he. On the day of Pentecost, Peter stands up to preach. You know what he preaches about? I will declare unto you who Jesus of Nazareth is. The lame man sitting by the temple, and uh, the apostles say to him, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of what? Nazareth, rise and walk. You know, we say it. We don't even think anything about it. Do you understand in Jesus' day what Nazareth was? Or excuse me, do you understand what it wasn't? Nazareth is not some big city like it is in Israel today. Nazareth was a simple place filled with common people. It was an agricultural village. They were gardeners. They were farmers. And it was a small place, they tell me, that in the time of Jesus, the city, the whole town of Nazareth, wait for it, had no more than 200 people living there. And if you think that's not enough, Nazareth was such a sinful, wicked place that the very name had become a byword for certain sins. For example, when I say Las Vegas, immediately something comes to your mind. Years ago, before immoral lifestyles and sodomy became the accepted norm all over our country, people used to say San Francisco, and immediately certain sinful lifestyle came to people's minds. Places get associated with certain things. They tell me that in Jesus' day, Nazareth was one of those places. That's why it was like scandalous. I mean, Jesus of Nazareth? You want to tell me that Messiah, the Son of God, the teacher of truth, the way, the truth, and the life, the, the promised seed, you want to tell me he comes through Na Nazareth? And that's why, do you remember Nathaniel said, can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Now, on this side, we can answer the question, not only can a good thing come out of Nazareth, God can blow through Nazareth. In fact, the Lord came through Nazareth and did some amazing things in that little town. Why? Because God loves to work in the commonplace. Oh, but that's not all. Look at verse number 2. When the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue. Notice where he went. It doesn't say the temple. It says the what? The 
synagogue. The temple was the place of worship and sacrifice. The synagogue was the place of teaching. It's where they studied the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. It's where they studied the Word of God. Don't miss this, young people. Don't miss this. You want to see God work? God works through His Word. Jesus' mighty works are not only connected to common places, they're connected to the Word of God. Do you know what this book is? This is not like any other book. The power is not in my words. The power is in God's Word. This book is water. It's the only thing that cleanses. It's fire. It's the only thing that purges. It is a sword. It is the only thing that prunes. It is bread. It is the only thing that feeds. It is milk. It is the only thing that satisfies. It is meat. It is the only thing that strengthens. It is a lamp and a light. It is the only thing that guides. Everything in your life that you need can be found in the Word of God. In fact, I have a stronger conviction than I've ever had in my life in the sufficiency of Scripture. I didn't come to preach good sermons to you this week. I came to say, thus saith the Lord, this is the Word of God, and you're going to have to determine whether you're going to follow God's Word or not. There's power in the Word, mighty work. And then when you come to verse number 3, notice, please, that His mighty works are done in simple people. I love this. Verse 3, they said it with disdain. Is not this the carpenter? By the way, did you know the word they used here for carpenter? I always had it in my mind, you know, working with wood. Actually, in Jesus' day, they did work with wood, but they did more stone work than they did woodwork, which means Jesus may have worked as much with rocks as he did with wood growing up in the carpenter shop. I love this. The word used for carpenter was the word that meant a builder. Is not this the builder? Hey, they got it right. They were talking to the ultimate builder. He's the one who built the whole world and held it all in the palm of his hand. He's the one who said, I will build my church. He's the one that can build your life like nobody else can. He is the builder. When they looked at him, all they saw, just, just a carpenter. And then the son of Mary. May I ask you, where was Joseph? We think by this time, because Joseph was much older than Mary, that Joseph had already died. And Mary? Mary's still being talked about behind her back. People still believe she was an immoral 17-year-old girl, that she was not a virgin, and they still made these little snide remarks at her. L listen, some of you are waiting until your circumstances get perfect before you follow Jesus. Let me just tell you, Jesus didn't even have perfect circumstances when he was here. His daddy was gone, and his mother was scandalized, but he had come to do the will of God that sent him, and you're going to have to determine whether you're going to be a true follower of Jesus or not. Hey, it's one thing to follow him to town, and it's quite another to obey him when you get there. And so here's Mary, here's his brothers, here's his sisters, and here's the simple Christ with peasant robes. And they just couldn't believe that God could work among such simple people. I want you to look me in the eye, and I want to tell you something. God wants you and you. And you, and you, and you, and you, and you don't have to impress him. You can't impress him. And, and God doesn't want you to make some of yourself. No, no. God just wants you to let the Lord do with your life what the Lord can do with your life. He's not looking for somebody that's smarter than everybody else, more capable than everybody else. 
He's just looking for somebody that will believe that Jesus is the Lord and that he ought to be the Lord of them and say to the Lord, you just do with me whatever you want to do, Lord. I don't want to miss your mighty works. And if we know this is how he performed the mighty works, I ask you, why did they miss it? Keep reading. Look at verse number 4. Here's the first reason. Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor, but in his own country and among his own kin in his own house. You know the first way they missed his mighty works? They didn't honor him. You've been very respectful to me this week, and I thank you for that. You didn't have to do that. Oh, maybe somebody get on you a little bit, but you don't have to listen like you're listening now, and I appreciate it. And I want you to forget me just a minute. Who cares who the preacher is? I want to ask you a question. Do you fear God? Do you have inside of you a real reverence for Jesus? What does the Lord mean to you? I mean, if you had to value him, Judas valued him, a few pieces of silver, that was all he was worth to him. If you had to value him, how would you value the one who shed his blood for you? The one who gave his life for you? I mean, do you understand? These people are looking God in the face. God robed in the flesh. Jesus became a man without ever ceasing to be God. He's not 50% man, 50%. God is 100% man and 100% God in the perfection of both. He is the sinless Son of God with a body on. And they're looking him in the face and they missed him. Because they refused to honor him for who he is. They refused to acknowledge that he truly was the Lord. And I'm going to tell you what's going to be sad. It's going to be sad someday when some people, the first time they ever acknowledge who he really is, is when they see him in the clouds. And it's going to be too late then. Even some of us who know Jesus as our Savior, we live our lives sometimes honoring ourselves and honoring everybody else and not honoring Jesus like we ought to honor Jesus. Can I ask you something? Do you think you're, you've honored the Lord today? Do you think your life is honoring to God right now? If you stood before God like you are right now, 60 seconds from right now, and gave an account of your life, would the Lord be pleased? D.L. Moody, the great evangelist. He was in a building, something like this, one afternoon, and it was a children's meeting. They said the place was packed with people, hundreds of children there. And Moody preached the gospel. He did a wonderful job. He was quite, quite well-spoken in the meeting. He captivated the audience. People responded. He walked off the lectern. He walked down out that door to get on a carriage to go to a, a neighboring town to speak in another meeting. And he got almost to the place where he was get on the carriage and somebody put their hand on his arm and stopped him. Moody turned. He said, I saw an old man I'd never seen before in my life. And he said, that old fellow got right in my face and said, young man, when you speak again about Jesus, honor the Holy Ghost. Moody said, I was offended. I thought, I just preached to hundreds of people in there. Lots of children responded. I don't know who you are. He said, I got on the carriage and went merrily on my way. He said, but the words that old man stuck in my heart, he said, I couldn't get away from it. Honor the Holy Ghost. Honor the Holy Ghost. And Moody started thinking about his life. He didn't even really know the Holy Spirit very well who lived inside of him. And he was operating in his own energy and his own strength and doing it how he wanted to do it. And Moody said, in a few years, he finally got to the end of himself, finally made a full surrender of his life to God. The Holy Spirit of God began to fill him. He said it was the most amazing thing. He said, I'd go into those same meetings, and this time, instead of 
me speaking. It was like the Lord was at work, and mighty things were done. Thousands came to faith in Christ, and the words of that old man came back, honor the Holy Ghost. Did you know there's only one thing God will not share? The Bible says, look, aren't you glad God's a sharing God? He shares everything. I mean, he shares grace and goodness and wisdom and mercy. He shares his truth. Oh, praise God, he shares. But there's one thing he doesn't share. The Bible says he won't share his glory with anybody. We must honor the Lord. There's a second reason they missed him. Look at verse number 5. The Bible says he could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. Would you circle the little word few? There's a great contrast to that. In Matthew chapter 12 and verse number 15, there was a group of people that followed him. And when they followed him, the Bible says he healed them all. There's a big difference between all and few. Would you write this down somewhere? We miss his mighty works when we limit what we allow him to do in our lives. Don't you know when Jesus saw those sick people, he wanted to heal all of them? Don't you know he wanted to help all of them? Don't you know he wanted to teach all of them? Don't you know he wanted to be good to all of them? And yet, only a few were willing to believe and obey him. Can I ask you something? Where have you drawn the line with God? Okay, so somebody gets saved. And we say, congratulations, you need to be baptized. Okay, I'll get baptized. Here's a Bible. You should learn to read the Bible. All right, I'll try reading the Bible. Here's how you pray. All right, I'll do that. Now look, you need to be a part of the church. Come every, every week. All right, I'll come. And we start taking these little steps of obedience early on, and we're doing pretty good. And God's blessing, and we're growing, and things are happening. And then suddenly, at some point, through the Word and by the Holy Spirit, God speaks to you about something in your life. It's like, shh, an arrow from heaven hits you, and God says, I want that part of your life. And we say, hold up just a second. Let's not get radical about this thing. And suddenly, Instead of taking another step of faith, we do this. We draw a line in the sand with God. We say, that's as far as I'm going. I want you to know, that's when you stop growing. Where are you stuck? I'm going to tell you, you're stuck at the last place you refuse to obey God. You waiting on me to preach on your sin? You waiting on me to tell you what the step is? I don't have to tell you that. God's telling you right now. What is the area of your life unyielded, unconsecrated to Christ? What's the area of your life where you've not yet obeyed the Lord Jesus? Are you willing tonight to say, I don't want to miss what God has for me? Look, God isn't a halfway God. When he does something, he does it thoroughly. He's very complete, and he wants all of you. But ultimately, there was one more great reason why he could there do no mighty works. It's the bottom line. Look at verse 6, and he marveled. Look at verse 6. He marveled because of their what? Unbelief. They just didn't believe in him. I ask people sometimes out traveling, trying to start a conversation about spiritual things. Well, I'll talk to somebody a little bit, and I'll say, are you a believer? It's interesting the question or the answers I get from people. Are you a believer? Sometimes they don't know what you're talking about. Sometimes immediately they know exactly what you're talking about. Could I ask you, are you a believer? No, no, I, I'm not asking do you believe there's a God. I'm not asking do you believe there's a heaven and hell. I'm not asking that. I'm asking are you a believer? Have you, have you put your faith in Jesus? 
Have you driven a stake a mile deep in the ground about your soul's salvation so there's no doubt about it? Do you know in whom you have believed and are persuaded that he's able to keep that you've committed to him against that day? Look, do you know for sure that your sins are forgiven and your name is written down in the Lamb's book of life in heaven? Do you know that you belong to Jesus and he belongs to you? If you don't, I say to you tonight, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. April the 14th, 1912, at 1140 at night, the ship that God himself could not sink, they said, cut through the icy waters of the North Atlantic. At 1140, it hit the iceberg and sank. It was a night for cowards and heroes, and there were plenty of both to go around. There was a man on board the Titanic that night whose name was John Harper. You can find him in the history books. His wife had already died. He had one little girl, his daughter. He took her. He took Nana to the deck of the ship, put her life jacket on her, put her on a lifeboat, and made a man promise to get her safely somewhere. And he did, and she lived. She was a survivor. John Harper, no life jacket, no boat, knew it was his last moments on earth. He went into the icy waters that night. He grabbed a hold of a piece of debris. And as long as his numb body would allow, he swam from person to person to person, asking them, do you know Jesus as your Savior? Are you ready to meet God? He bumped into a fellow in the water. He asked him the question, and the man cried out through the darkness, no, no, I don't know that. And John Harper said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And the current pulled them apart. And just moments later, they bumped into one another again. Same guy. I love that. And John Harper said, are you saved yet? And the man said, not yet, sir. And the last words John Harper uttered this side of eternity were these words, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. He slipped beneath the water and was gone, gone to meet Jesus. The man that he witnessed to got plucked out of the water that night. And a month later, he stood in Canada at a missions conference and raised his hand with tears streaming down his face and said, I'm John Harper's last convert. I wasn't just saved physically that night. I believed on Jesus, and I know I've been born again. Some of you need to stop playing games with God, and you need to believe on him. Don't you miss heaven for anybody. I'm going to tell you something. I wouldn't go to hell for anybody. I wouldn't go to hell for anything. If I didn't know for sure Jesus was my Savior, I'd get that settled immediately. But I'm not just talking lost people tonight. Do you understand sometimes believers live like unbelievers? See, faith isn't just how you get saved. It's how you live. That's why the Bible says the just shall live by faith. This is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that is rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Some of you are struggling with some sin right now, and you've almost given up on it. You believe the lie of the devil. You, you, you're living in hopelessness tonight because you think you can never conquer that. Well, you can't, but Jesus can, and you need to believe that Christ is greater than all your sin. Some of you got big problems at home. You're already dreading going back to it and wondering what you're going to do when you get there. I came to tell you tonight, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You must exercise faith in God right where you are. Faith is not ha something you have. It is something you use. It's a muscle. If you don't exercise it, it's going to get weak. Mark eleven twenty two 22 says, have faith in God. Somebody sent me a message today. 
And they said, with that amount of young people, we could have revival in America. I thought to myself, how many young people have sat here this summer? Not this week, this summer. I want you to think how many thousands of young people have come through this camp this summer. I want to ask you a question. What do you think would happen in a country like ours if that many Christian young people started exercising faith in God and actually believed that God would answer their prayer and could do something in their generation? I'm going to tell you, this is not a day for low expectations. This is a day to pray big prayers to a big God and believe that God is more than enough. I don't want to miss God's mighty work in my generation. I'm preaching to you tonight like I want somebody to preach to my own children. I'm looking at you tonight, and I'm seeing Morgan and Lauren and Grant, and I'm wondering what kind of country they're going to have and what kind of nation they're going to raise their own kids in and what kind of future they're going to have if Jesus tarries his coming. I'm going to tell you, some young men and young women better get serious about following Jesus and start believing God right where they are or we're going to miss God's mighty work in our generation. I say to you tonight, it is time for some of you to get off the fence. Enough neutrality, enough nominal Christianity, enough of that. Enough of your besetting sin, enough of your pet sin. Tonight is the night to say, dear Lord, I don't want to miss whatever it is you have for me. Fanny Crosby, we probably sing more of her hymns than anybody else in the hymn book. She wrote hundreds of them. She's blind. Blind from childhood, not bitter. A doctor messed her up. Somebody said, would you like to have your eyesight back? She said, not at all. She said it was a gift. Sometimes blind people see more than seeing people do. She lived literally by faith and not by sight. She was a believer. She lived in lower Manhattan on the west side. If you go there now, it's beautiful. Matter of fact, lower Manhattan... Financial district, money, not in her day. It was tenement housing. She was poor. But Fanny Crosby had Jesus. Oh, and she loved him. And every day she went to the local prison, every week rather, she went to the local prison and conducted a service. Now think about this. She's not a preacher. She's a blind hymn writer and singer. And she goes to a prison by herself every week. Gets a bunch of hardened criminal men in a room and tells them all that Jesus loves them and sings the gospel to them and urges them to trust Christ. I'm telling you, people like that, they have something. Dear God, let me have that. Fanny was leaving the prison one day. She had to be guided down the corridor, of course, and so her guide is with her, and she's tapping along. She's moving down the corridor. It's amazing. When people lose senses, other senses peak. You know, they lose one thing, something else makes up, compensates for it. And with Fanny, her hearing was phenomenal. She's walking down this corridor, and she can hear noises, of course, in every cell, and people talking and doing lots of things and making fun, all kinds of things. And then she said she passed one particular cell, and she didn't know who the man was, but she knew he wasn't talking to her. She said, I could tell by where he was. He wasn't up on my level. She said he was down on the floor with his face to the ground. She said, I could tell where he was in proximity to me. And she said, I could also tell by his tone 
He wasn't just talking. He was praying. And she said, all I heard of his prayer were these words. Oh, dear God. Please. Please. Please don't pass me by. Tanny Crosby went home that night, went to bed and tried to go to sleep, and she couldn't. She reached for a pen and paper near her bed, and she started writing, and she wrote that famous hymn, Pass me not, O gentle Savior, hear my humble cry. While on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. Let me at a throne of mercy find a sweet relief. Kneeling there in deep contrition, help mine unbelief. D.O. Moody and Ira Sankey heard it, thought it was a great revival song. They started singing it all over America and around the world, and it called people to say, I'm not going to miss what God has for me. The Lord is passing through. I'm not going to let him pass me by. I'm going to cry out to him and say, Lord, I believe. I will obey you. Whatever you want, the answer is yes. And I came on this Tuesday night to say to every camper that's here this week, don't miss what God has for you. Don't you dare miss God's mighty works. If this Bible message has been used of God in your life, or we can pray for you in some definite way, please contact us at enjoyingthejourney.org. We hope you will share the message with others who may also be encouraged by it. For additional full-length Bible messages, please visit Dr. Scott Pauley's YouTube channel. Tomorrow is the Lord's Day, and we want to encourage you to be faithful to attend a Bible-preaching church in your area this Sunday. Thank you for listening to The Weekend Pulpit, and don't miss Enjoying the Journey daily devotional podcast each Monday through Friday.